from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, holding the Saudis accountable for massive human rights violations, including the murder shredding of an American journalist. Also, domestic workers commemorate International Domestic Workers Day. And our regular segment on hunger and houselessness, Food Fight with Food Food.bomb's founder, Keith McHenry. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We come to you out of the San Francisco Bay Area. And today we're also live in Los Angeles and across the West Coast. We are happy to have you along. Uh, And we're going to start with a segment on the folks in this country, in this state, who do some of the most crucial frontline labor to keep us all going. Uh, and uh, this is a day and a week and a time uh, that we're going to begin to honor them. We're talking about uh, uh, the, well, the domestic workers in California. And joining us to talk about it is Renee Saucedo. Uh, she's with Alma. She's the program director there. And Renee, why is it important to um, commemorate International Domestic Workers Day? Uh, tell us something about the work that these folks do and uh, why they really need a certain kind of spotlight thrown on that work. Yes. Um, Good afternoon, Dennis. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, It's extremely important that we all commemorate International Domestic Workers Day um, for many reasons. First of all, because as you just mentioned, domestic workers who are the house cleaners and caregivers of elders and the caregivers uh, for children who work primarily in people's private homes uh, offer an invaluable service to our community. Um, They take care of people's homes. They take care of people's loved ones. And they put themselves at risk um, by doing so. They work long hours, sometimes uh, as live-ins in people's homes, uh, always being accessible to the elders and the children if they need anything in the middle of the night. Um, House cleaners in particular expose themselves to toxic chemicals and back-breaking work, which causes all kinds of health hazards like um, sore muscles and rashes and pulmonary disease because of the heavy lifting that they do and because of the toxic chemicals that they use in order to do their jobs. It's an isolated industry because they work in people's homes So we see, unfortunately, a lot of cases of sexual harassment and physical abuse against these workers. Um, So it's important to honor their work and to see their labor uh, as work and to see their employers 
and their private homes as workplaces. It's important for us to commemorate this day, June 16th, which was yesterday, because not only because of the important work that they do and, and the way we should honor that work, but because historically domestic workers have not been considered workers at all um, uh, who are entitled or should be entitled to labor protections and um, decent wages and health and safety at the workplace. Uh, historically, they have been specifically excluded from health and safety protections, for example, just like farm workers were historically until relatively recently. Why? Because historically, women of color have been doing these jobs. Uh, African-American women, uh, Fijian women, Filipina women, Latina women, indigenous women. So these are some of the reasons why, Dennis, we are very excited and very proud as Almas to join the California Domestic Worker Coalition, our National uh, Domestic Worker Alliance, and many other organizations to commemorate um, this day as a day to honor this industry and to make sure that we support the workers in their ongoing struggle to gain basic labor rights and basic human rights. That's the voice of Renee Saucedo. Uh, she's the uh, program director at Almas, uh, works with domestic workers. Uh, we're talking about commemorating uh, with uh, now a uh, domestic workers, uh, uh, sort of the commer- uh, a, a workers uh, will commemorate International Domestic Workers Day. Uh, and uh, I want to just follow up uh, on some of what you were saying, Renee, because I really want people to understand the gravity of the situation and why it, it is so important to really shine a light on the industry and attend uh, to the needs of these folks who do some of the hardest work as you're outlining. But for instance, uh, we've seen, uh, and it continues, major problems in terms of a virus being protected from a virus. You've got these workers who are in, as you say, taking care of elderly members of the family and children, those who are most, uh, uh, you can count on most to spread the disease. There's the, there, what kind of support do these folks have who are doing the work? Oftentimes, they don't even have uh, the basics in medical care. Uh, and you also, uh, well, why don't you talk about that? I mean, that is so significant, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, Dennis. Um, as you and your uh, listeners probably remember, during the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing statistics about how... Uh, Latinx workers and documented immigrant workers in particular were disproportionately being infected with COVID. And that was because of the types of jobs they were doing, but also because they weren't entitled to any safety net benefits in order to be able to stay home. They had to go to work in order to put food on their family's table. So during COVID, we 
we saw and many of our members uh, survived this. They uh, were infected with COVID uh, uh, inside people's private homes. And um, even though, you know, we had a lot of trainings in our organization and we had a lot of, you know, experts come in and tell them how to work as safely as possible, um, many of them became infected because of the nature of their work inside people's homes. Sometimes employers refused to wear masks or did not notify the workers that they were infected with COVID. Another example is, um, you know, uh, after the wildfires here in Sonoma County, we've been having wildfires almost every year now. The wildfires are starting earlier and they're a lot more severe um with climate change so it's getting hotter and hotter less water a lot more fires well who do you think uh are the workers who are cleaning the homes and the buildings and the areas outside of these buildings and homes um during and after the wildfires it's the domestic workers who are hired by agencies or private homeowners you know to um clean out the the burnt uh, materials uh exposing them to you know they tell us stories about how they smell chemicals the smell of burnt metals um how they have to clean walls that are full of soot and how that causes them to have coughing attacks, to aggravate asthma, to give them rashes, how their eyes burn, how their lungs burn, how they can't breathe. So, um, yeah, this is really serious. Domestic workers are getting hurt on the job. And, you know, they're not sitting idly by and letting it happen. We have a powerful a statewide domestic worker coalition, and we're so proud to be a part of it. And as you know, uh, we uh, uh, introduced legislation with our friends in Sacramento uh, so that domestic workers would not be excluded from basic health and safety protections, which they currently are. They're specifically excluded from health and safety. Thanks, thanks to our governor, and I, I want to get to that. I don't want to get. I want to get to official California in one moment, but I'm I'm not done with this. The, the other aspect of the the dangers that the work is that you represent face uh, face these days, in particular, is even worse than ever. Is the nature is self is sexual harassment, and the fact that oftentimes if women complain uh, about attacks or, or about brutalities, uh, they're vulnerable based on their immigration status. Uh, and in the That's context right. of some of the worst immigration policy in the modern history of the U.S., I'm sorry to say under a Democrat now, uh, these, these women are even more vulnerable, aren't they? That's right. Our organization assists domestic workers with um, labor rights, we support them in their wage claims, in their sexual harassment claims, and other um, issues that they face at work. And I can't tell you, you know, the number of stories I hear about 
these women being touched and approached inappropriately and told things, uh, sexual innuendos. Um, And then some of them, you know, receive, are, are the recipients of physical violence. Employers sometimes kick them or pull their hair and um and of course there's the general you know lack of dignity and disrespect that they receive being yelled at and being treated like uh, children sometimes um not being given breaks that's a, a huge issue so yeah there's there are a lot of issues facing um these workers and but you know i just want to say again uh these women are just incredible, are incredibly powerful. They are survivors and they're warriors. So they're, they're pushing for legislation so that they have basic health and safety laws in place here in, in California so that Cal OSHA um, rules will cover them. They're organizing to fight against wage theft. They're organizing and filing sexual harassment claims against employers. These women are fighting back whether they have status or not. And they are the bravest human beings I've ever met in my life. Well, uh, another another one of those very brave human beings is our guest now. Our, her name is Renee Salcedo, uh, and Renee Salcedo uh, is the program director for Almas, uh, and we are talking about uh, uh, commemorating International Dome- uh, Domestic Workers Day. There are going to be activities on Saturday, but let's just, before we get to the events of the day and what you'd like uh, people to do and understand how they might be a part of this uh, wonderful movement that you represent, Renee, is the politicians, our, our, our governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, has not been friendly to domestic workers. Uh, and it really does, this is where class is big time. Uh, and the reasons why uh, the Gov and others won't uh, fully support these uh, domestic workers is because uh, they're working for a lot of rich people, which the Gov depends on for campaign contributions, right? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely some class uh, bias and racism happening. Um, You know, it's no coincidence that the governor vetoed our bill once and then threatened to veto it the second time around after the state legislature had passed it. Um, And, you know, he's biased because he lives in a world where he and his network employ domestic workers in their homes. So they're directly impacted. There's the element of undocumented workers continuing to be dehumanized, Dennis. There's, they're still dehumanized in the sense that they're seen as commodities rather than human beings. And so why would commodities um, as workers, why would they need protections, right? Especially if that risks your your rich friends and even your middle class friends who employ uh, housekeepers and caregivers to be responsible, to be held accountable at a very basic level. But the third piece of it that's very important is that the governor and others cannot 
seem to wrap their heads around the idea that private homes are, are workplaces. Private homes are workplaces, and that's why domestic workers' labor rights should be protected. This is not, you know, the underground economy we're talking about. Domestic workers should not be working in the shadows. They should be working under the same protections that every other worker uh, works under. And we should expose the abuses that domestic workers are going through. They're not, you know, secondary workers. They're not unimportant workers. They're not informal workers. They are, they are workers just like any other worker in our state, in our country, and they deserve to be treated with dignity just like any other industry. Amazing. Renee, tell us a little bit about there, there are going to be some activities in support of these wonderful workers uh, over the weekend, I believe on Saturday. So tell us about that and also make sure that people know how to follow this story and, and get more information about it and um, uh, know when to vote and who to vote for to support uh, the courage that we've seen come out of uh, these these grassroots struggle, these women who are speaking truth to power from every angle. Sure. Um, June 16th is commemorated every day because it was the date of the passage of what's called the International Labor Organization Convention, number 189, for decent work for domestic workers. Domestic workers from all over the world, including the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, came together to fight to establish this international law. And even though the U.S. is one of the countries that hasn't ratified the convention, uh, domestic workers use this international law as a tool to continue to organize around labor and basic human rights. So just last night, our California Domestic Worker Coalition had a beautiful virtual event where the workers talked about their experiences and talked about the importance to our allies and community partners about how we need to to uh, win basic health and safety protections and end the exclusion of domestic workers. Um, and then this Saturday here in Sonoma County, Almas will be having a celebration um at Bayer Park and, um, you know, they'll be celebrating their work and talking about our campaigns and, and talking about the next steps. So um, this is something that domestic workers celebrate every year. Well, um, we're glad that you could come and tell us about it. And again, is there a website, uh, a phone number, uh, just to make sure people who want to get in touch can? Yes, uh, the best thing people can do is take a look at the website and Facebook page of the California Domestic Workers Coalition. And one thing that we really need people to do right now is very simple and easy. Communicate with uh, Governor Newsom and tell him that he needs to end the exclusion of domestic workers under basic health and safety laws. Wow, that seems pretty simple. Let's say that again. What yeah. do we want them to do? What do we want them to do? We want them, yeah, we want them to contact Governor Newsom 
and say that they support domestic workers being protected under Cal OSHA health and safety laws. Beautiful. So you speaking for Almas uh, and many of the people in this state are asking for human rights, again, for some of those folks who do the hardest work in this state, in this country, and oftentimes are abused for it. Thank you, Renee Salcedo, for all your good work. I should also say you're an attorney and a longtime civil rights uh, activist. So thanks for all the incredible work. Please stay safe. Thank you, Dennis. Take care. Bye-bye now. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Before we break, I'm just going to say this. Now, we're going to come back to the uh, Texas school slaughter. Uh, If you haven't noticed, uh, the district is in a full-blown cover-up. They've hired a private PR slash legal firm. They are totally resisting. There is a structure in place essentially to stop any kind of real investigation for at least six months. And that will be enough time for the governor of Texas to run and get reelected without having to deal with the extraordinary slaughter that happened of those children because the governor and everybody on down dropped the ball. We will watch that story very closely. They will not get away with the murder of 19 children and two teachers. It's outrageous. More to come on this. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by uh, Keith McHenry for our a regular segment, Food Fight, and keep this in a pitch battle there in Santa Cruz. Stay with us. Flashpoints Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We are broadcasting today from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we are happy to have you along. We focus our attention once again on houselessness and hunger uh, and what happens to those folks who try and give out free food in this world. Uh, we are joined regularly by Keith McHenry. He is the founder of Food Not Bombs. That is a, a national and international 
Association that focuses on making food available to the hungry without any catches, without any connections, without having to submit to being, you know, under some kind of arrest or in state. Sponsored control. It's an amazing organization around over 40 years, and we are once again happy to welcome back uh, Keith McHenry. Keith, welcome back to Flashpoints. Yeah, thank you, Dennis. Yeah, you know, today, as I, uh, as people probably know, the uh, Congress and the Senate are talking about adding even more billions of dollars to the military budget, and it's over uh, over. Four hundred billion of that goes directly to military contractors, and yet we have, as everybody that buys gas and food knows, this huge economic crisis right now. And of course, the poor are the ones paying really the the highest price right now. And there are crackdowns. Uh, I don't have to tell you, Keith, uh, you're in the middle of one in Santa Cruz, but this is happening. I'm sure you're getting messages from other uh, Food Not Bombs folks around the country, but uh, this crackdown that along the gas and the food and the prices, uh, it is... It's um, really having an impact, and people are going a little crazy. I'm hearing a lot, just as uh, anecdotally, about you know, oh, that is another forty billion for the war, another billion for the war, another hundred million for the war. We're hungry. We need food. What's going on? How could it be? Whenever they need forty billion dollars for a war, they can find it, but they can't feed the homeless. What's the answer to that question, Keith? Well, what's really incredible is they hand out forty billion to the war in Iraq. In uh, Iraq, oh my God, too many wars. That's another one. Yeah. Um, in, in Ukraine, um, is uh, you know while the the same government is saying they could house every unhoused person in the country for the the same price, but so that that is really outrageous. It, it appears that the people in power at both federal, state, and local level have no interest in resolving the problem and uh and i and and i'm I'm becoming more and more concerned that my um my 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 work my my thought that the solution so-called will be internment camps is becoming closer and closer to reality and i would say you know we're having homeless sweeps you know camp sweeps of homeless camps all over the country and it's just they're just throwing people's all their belongings away in the garbage trucks, driving them away. Then people have to go, you know, get more stuff, and uh, and then find another place to to live. And in Santa Cruz, is a is a total classic situation where and it's pretty clear that the city government, and I think this is common, do not re- think that the homeless are are human beings. So, for instance, they have this elaborate plan where they had. Spaces for 100 or 315 individuals who would be kicked out of what we call the bench lands, where there's probably four or 500 people at this point, into these new pla- these places. But already, what I discovered in talking to the individuals that live in the different shelters, they're already full. So they have to evict the first 315 people out of those places to put 315 new people into them. That does not make it make any sense, and um, and I think this is often the the case that, that basically the city governments will 
will arrest a lot of people, take their stuff, throw it all away, push them from corner to corner, and then, you know, wonder why there's more people living on the streets and that they haven't solved their problem. And then the other thing that happens is that we get all these buildings being built that are luxury condominiums or what they uh, euphemistically call affordable housing that no one really can afford to live so we have, like, let me think what we'll have is a luxury condo, and then the, the developer will pay into a trust so that for affordable housing, that trust never actually builds affordable housing, and yet they say, well, it's like 10% uh, affordable housing, but there actually is no affordable housing. They just paid money to a, to a bank account somewhere that never ultimately gets used to build affordable housing. That's very frightening. And, and we need to really organize as a whole nation to demand that instead of impoverishing us and sending all of our money off to military contractors, that we have that money spent here to house people, to feed people. Um, you know, it's no mystery. Everybody needs a place to live. And the way to end homelessness, as Paul Bowden, uh, a friend of mine that um, – who I worked with at the uh, uh, San Francisco Coalition of the Homeless years ago, or were associated with, says, um, and who now does rap, um, the solution to homelessness is a home. And that's basically it. Once you get a person into a home, other issues that they might be having um, can more easily be resolved. But you can't be like, you know, arresting somebody for drug use or putting somebody in a mental health ward and then just dumping them back out onto the street and to the same community of people that they're already having to live with. So what else are they going to do? They're going to go back to doing the same things that they're doing. And now you have this massive number of, of uh, I would say if the stock market completely goes south, which is pretty highly likely, there's going to be all these pensioners, all these people that are on four, with 401ks and so on that will be completely bankrupt, and then they'll be forced into the streets. And then... You know, this is just going to get out of control and more and more chaos. And 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 it's so there really is. There's no plan. So when we talk about when we talk about inflation, there really is an impact uh, on the work that you do, Keith. Right? The 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 devaluating. Yeah. Go on. Right now, our volunteers. I some. Uh, you know, I we hand out. We have to raise roughly a thousand dollars a week for gas money now, just to go collect the food, pick up the food, drive the food from the kitchen to the to where we are, just to keep all of our volunteers in gas money. And they, and they and and uh, no one's making any money. No one's making like a profit. It's not a wage. This is just to pay for gas. And we're seeing this. You know, I just um, from people up in Moscow, Idaho, were just contacting me like to. Say, oh, we we really need to have this donation that they sent to the uh, Food Not Bombs Free School processed right away. We can't afford the gas, and this is happening everywhere. Not only in the U.S., but in the Philippines, and then, you know, and and uh, it's a, a worldwide crisis of, of inflation just for the actual operation of Food Not Bombs. But then, on top of that, the amount of new people coming to the streets, and in Santa Cruz, they just passed the. An ordinance, which is not yet to be enforced because we're still stopping it in the Coastal Commission right now, but called the, the Oversized Vehicle Ordinance, which makes it illegal to park an RV overnight in the city. 
Now, when you have a little bit of means and you know you're about to lose your housing, the most logical thing is to buy like a large van or an RV. And if you can even afford that now, but that's a, that's a, I mean, almost uh, out of reach for many people as the inflation continues. But then you've got this RV. You can't be in town, but, but you can't pay for gas to get it out of town. And we're seeing that people coming. I, I get like so many requests every day just from people needing, you know, 50 bucks to drive their RV to a safe location. That's insanity. And, um, and and I'm sure I'm not the only one facing that. We're I'm sure every Food Not Bombs, and the, you know we I do I see like uh, there's panhandling on Food Not Bombs websites all over the the world. People looking for help to to just pay for their gas so they can go to work. I mean I I see that in Tallahassee Food Not Bombs all the time now. That's it's just incredible. So we're in a catastrophe, and it's it seems like the people in power want the poor people to be just driven into the streets and um, working people just to be made homeless and then confiscate their vehicles and force them into tents. I mean, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any logic other than just cruelty and this idea, and, and I call it class blindness in a way. And, um, and I think one of the most interesting examples of that, I published something um, today called the, um, uh, Santa Cruz city officials puzzled by reality. So they had these uh, 315 locations to place people in. So they kicked some people out of this one area, and then they forced people out of the benchlands to go go there. You know, like a few people. They said, oh, you know, they're trying to get, you know, you know, in little groups of people to go there. And so then the city manager is like, we don't know what went on, but the people left the what the people themselves described the uh, homeless that were put there as a prison camp they left the, the camp that we provide for them and went back to the benchlands we don't know what to do and they they then have this huge conversation in city council like we're just mystified you know why don't they like our accommodations well the accommodations as the uh, um people that i know that did put up with living there were horrible there was a tent in the sun you had to wait for a van. You had to. You couldn't. Uh, you know, one woman was ex- describing how she almost got fired because the schedule of the van to bring you back to the city town was so poorly planned that she couldn't make it to her job. So you know that every barrier is intentionally seems to be intentionally created, or it's just this. Um, like again, I, I say a class blindness. I mean, it's like the, they believe that the unhoused people are rodents, and if we just cage them in over there, they won't, you know, they'll be fine. But they're just wandering around, helter skelter, going off to their jobs and going to where they want to go, almost like they're free Americans or something. It's, it, it's, you know, but and they're baffled by that. Like they want to be told where to go and when to go and have all kinds of restrictions when they themselves have. Uh, allegedly not done any crimes other be than be a politician in our city. Listen, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, we've been speaking with Keith Big Henry. This is a regular segment we do with Keith on Food Not Bombs, on uh, houselessness and hunger and the struggle uh, to feed the poor and the, the kind of restrictions now that the poor face because it really has uh, grown the, the criminalization of 
poor people and homeless people in this country, houseless people in this country, uh, has become uh, a great deal worse given the economic squeeze. Of course, that's no surprise. Uh, but Keith, if people want information uh, about Food Not Bombs or want to learn more about it or want to be join your, ca- your cause, what's the best way to do that? Well, then go to foodnotbombs.net, and there you have the hunger hotline, which uh, reaches myself at 1-800-884-1136, or the email menu at foodnotbombs.net. And we have uh, chapters in over a 1,000 cities and over 65 countries, and we are 100% volunteer, and we're dependent on volunteers for support. And uh, and, um, you can also, you know, find out all the types of things we need, typically tents, blankets, socks, clothing, um, food, and uh, any financial contributions you are, are able to pitch down can be done at nutbombs.net. We this just, is like just an aside. How's the just an aside before we go, Keith? How's the uh, uh, the food not bombs in Ukraine doing? You know, we cannot reach the actual individuals in Ukraine. We do have a massive uh, situation happening on the border. Uh, we had to stop our Belarus activity that got shut down even like a um pro- i would say about six months before the russian invasion um and but we have we have been trying to reach the ukrainian bombs there's seven chapters in ukraine they're both in the donbass region and in the in the west um we have um people in um the polish food bombs chapters are trying to get to them uh we have not uh, located them, unfortunately, but we are handling this massive refugee crisis on the border, and uh, that's been been incredible. And that's now actually expanding beyond just the Polish border into other parts of, of Europe. At this point, it's uh, it's well, it's tragic. Well, it's really tragic. I'm sure you're a lot of the work you're doing is uh, and Food Not Bombs is doing is appreciated there. We appreciate you, Keith and Henry. Always uh, welcome here. Uh, we hope that you will continue to keep us posted. Uh, we urge you to stay safe, and you know, you know my phone number. Be careful. Yep, we certainly will. Okay, thank you so much, Dennis. Right. Thanks to everybody out there. Welcome. You're so welcome, and you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break, and then we're going to talk about uh, the Saudis and Yemen and why in this world would the United States still be supporting that violent, bloody, vicious war that's turned Yemen into uh, a, a tragedy zone, everything going wrong in the world from the pandemic to hunger, starvation, I should say, is being suffered uh, and it's not getting any better. And the United States is not playing a good role. That's what we're going to talk about when we come back. Stay tuned.
flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Gorgeous music provided by our technical director, music specialist, Mike Biggs. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're broadcasting live today from San Francisco and Los Angeles. We are happy to have you along. We are not happy to see that the situation with the Saudis and Yemen and U.S. support for the bloody murderous war there continues unabated and it seems like the Saudis continue to get a free pass from the United States whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the office joining us to talk about this profoundly serious situation is Dr. Aisha Juman. Uh, she is president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. She recently wrote the piece, Corporate Media Failed to Cover War in Yemen Due to U.S. Support for Saudi Arabia. And, and let me uh, read just a little bit of um, this in terms of uh, uh, there was recently a decision um, to uh, create a um, uh, memorial piece for Jamal Khashoggi, uh, they, or I should say a, uh, name a, um, a street uh, after the slain journalist who was slaughtered, literally cut to pieces by the Saudis under Saudi watch. Um, so his name, as he, in, he was an American journalist working with the Washington Post, uh, they have uh, created a street and uh, un- named it after them. But um, Dr. Juman, uh, that's sort of nice. But meanwhile, um, the president is still uh, giving um, positive acknowledgement based on U.S. policy uh, to the Saudis, and the United States is still, I believe, still, I don't know, are they still supplying the actual uh, gas for the planes that continue to carry out the slaughters in Yemen? Sure. Thank you, Dennis, for having me. The U.S. continues to support the Saudi-led war on Yemen. Uh, Like you said, it started under President Obama, continued under Trump, and we were hoping that you know, Biden, President Biden was going to, you know, change that because he said that while he was campaigning. He also said that in his first national speech that he would make Saudi Arabia the pariah state that it is uh, simply, like you said, you know, the dismemberment and killing of Jamal Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Um, and then also the atrocities and the war crimes that are being committed against the Yemeni people, not just from the war, but also from the siege they have imposed on Yemen, resulting in, you know, 16 million people in Yemen today who are experiencing famine. So we were hoping that President Biden was going to have a different take. Um, Unfortunately, he is now going to visit Saudi Arabia uh, in July. And he's meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, who is the architect of the war in Yemen, and also who ordered the killing of uh, Khashoggi. So it's really very disappointing uh, to see this happening. If Trump had decided to take this visit, I think the whole media is going to go in a frenzy saying that this is the wrong thing. President Biden knows he's doing the wrong thing because every day he tries to explain away 
why he is going. Uh, last week, he said that he's going because... Hello? I think we have lost our guest. Hello, are you there, Dr. Juman? Uh, okay, all right. Uh, are you with us, doctor? We are going to see if we can get the doctor back. This is Flashpoints, this incredibly important subject. We're talking about U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen and really U.S. support for the Saudis, uh, one of the most violent governments in the world with mass hangings on a weekly basis that uh, women uh, are still back in the 19th century uh, under Saudi law and very little has changed there. The United States keeps making promises, but uh, they seem to be owned by the Saudis. Did you catch the deal that Jared... All right. Uh, sorry, we lost you there, Dr. Juman. You were saying uh, there was a, there's been a litany of uh, excuses for uh, coming out of the administration about the, why they continue to support the Saudis. The president is visiting Saudi Arabia. So initially he said they are there because they want to have this protection program or defense program for the, for the Saudi Emiratis and the Israelis which is quite interesting because these three countries are the most armed uh, in the region. So I'm not sure that they are the ones who need protection. In fact, it's the Yemeni people who need protection. They've been bombarded on a daily basis by American-made planes and American-made weapons since March 2015. And today he said that he is not going to meet Mohammed bin Salman, but rather... He is going to a meeting where Mohammed bin Salman is going to be at. The right. fact is, Mohammed bin Salman is the one who called for the meeting. So he is <laughs> the host of the meeting. So I'm He's just not sure yeah. why there. So, I mean, you know what? That's a lie. You have to say, I'm sorry, in my book, <laughs> Doctor, forgive me for interrupting, but that's a lie. The prince calls the meeting. But Biden says, oh, he's just going to a meeting where the prince happens to be at, but the uh, the prince is calling the shots. I call that a lie. That's a deception, wouldn't you say? It, it, it really for, is. But this dancing around the, the issue, I think for me, indicates that President Biden knows he's doing the wrong thing. I mean, every day he comes up with an excuse for why he's doing this. Uh, but the media is not calling him on this. And, and that's where it's really distressing um, that, you know, we are supposed to have free media and the media should be calling him on why he's doing and why is he lying about why he's going to Saudi Arabia. And then this issue of, you know, um, creating a pact where they're going to even have more weapons uh, just, you know, when in fact it's the many people who've been under attack. The Saudi have are the largest importer of weapons in the world. And guess how many wars they've had with Yemen. That's it. And they are the largest importer of weapons in the world. 11% of world weapons go to Saudi Arabia. And they're using all of that against the Yemeni people. And they're the ones who need a security pact from the U.S. And the U.S. is obliging. 
our president is saying yes to that, that doesn't make you sense. Know, Dr. Jumanya, I'm sure you didn't miss that the deal that uh, Jared Kushner cut uh, with the oh. Saudis on the way out of the White House, uh, as did a, a, another major U, uh, official of the Trump administration, worth billions. Now, uh, I'm sure the the Bidens will say, well, yeah, but that, I mean, we, we didn't like it, but well, it happened under the uh, Trump administration. But um, th these kinds of deals. This is way the this is the way the Saudis buy the U.S. Congress and they buy uh, U.S. policy. Uh, and obviously, weapons contractors have lobbyists. Uh, so, yes. um, you know, if this was if, if if I guess if Trump was doing this, if Trump had lied about being at a meeting. Uh, with this Saudi prince slash murderer, uh, if Trump was there, I bet you MSM, uh, NBC would have reported it. Oh, not just that. CNN, the New York Times, the Washington, everybody would have reported it. And, and that's the irony of how the media treats President Biden uh, in a way where they give him leeway. When he, it, like you said, he's lying about it. Uh, and we know he's lying about it. And, and the fact that they are not talking about the atrocities committed against the Yemeni people, uh, the fact that there is a siege on Yemen that nobody is talking about, and the administration actually claimed that there was no siege. It took a reporter from CNN to go to Yemen, and actually she was smuggled into the country uh, to prove that there is a siege. And they used you know, satellite photographs to show that the Saudis are pirating ships going to Yemen and, you know, taking them to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so Amazing. all of that, the majority of the American public, they don't know about it. However, we are working now into, uh, for, into, we, through working with uh, the Progressive Caucus in Congress, introduce a war power resolution. And we are hoping that this is a way to force the administration to stop sending arms to Saudi Arabia and to stop supporting the Saudi-led war on Yemen. So we are calling on, you know, members uh, of the Amer American public to call in their representatives and senators to say that we do support uh, the Yemen war power resolution because we need to stop our complicity as the U.S. government and as U.S. nation uh, in the war crimes that are committed uh, against Yemen. Amazing. Now, listen, uh, Dr. Juman, I, I want to tap into the medical side of your work and your knowledge, because I want people to understand the severity of the situation that the United States is continuing to inflame. We're talking about starvation. We're talking about uh, a pandemic. We're talking about a not, almost a non-existent medical system. And then we're talking about these Saudi bombings with the help of the U.S. government and the, uh, and the blockades that are creating a famine. It is amazing. So when, when the American administration lies about this, this is a very serious deception coming out of the Bush administration. Can, can you just spend a minute or two on the nature of the medical situation? Sure. Um, the Yemen, the medical 
services in Yemen have been disseminated. Uh, only 50% of the medical uh, centers and units that are available that have been ruined and damaged or completely destroyed by the war. We also have Yemen experienced the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history. Uh, in the 21st century, uh, we should not be having such large cholera outbreaks. A child dies every 10 minutes in Yemen out of uh, diseases that we can prevent, including infectious diseases and vaccine-preventable diseases. We have 35,000 people in Yemen who need medical evacuation and cannot leave Yemen because the, you know, of the blockade. Uh, we have polio now in Yemen. Polio, Yemen was free of polio for many years. And now polio has researched in Yemen. It's the vaccine-derived, but that is extremely alarming. We have measles outbreak in Yemen. Uh, we even have a diphtheria outbreak that's been raging for a few years now. Yemen has not had a diphtheria outbreak since 1980. If you look at child mortality, if you look at maternal mortality, Yemen has lost between 10 to 20 years in terms of health indicators. So, you know, all the health indicators where we were progressing, Yemen was progressing and doing a good job of reaching, you know, lower mortality for maternal and infant mortality. We have now lost the gain that we have achieved in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. So it set the Yemeni health indicators 15 years backward. That's quite yeah. a lot of loss. You know, we've worked so hard to get to where we we are today. There are a million women in Yemen today who are anemic. Uh, and like I said earlier, uh, there are f you know, five, you know, 16 million Yemeni people who are at the risk of famine. Five million of those are Yemeni children. And if you think about the development, uh, mental development and cognitive development of the five million Yemeni children who are experiencing famine today, that's actually a very bleak picture because many of them are not going to develop cognitively well enough and that is something that Yemen will have to deal with for many years to come. If you look at also the mental health uh, issues in Yemeni schools there was a study that was done that found in Sana'a city 79% of school kids have PTSD. 79% of Yemeni wow. children in school are experiencing PTSD. So, yeah, it's extremely grim. Well, how many people live in Yemen? 13 million people. Wow. The UN well, says by the end of this year, there are going to be 20 million people in Yemen who will be at the risk of famine. So it will go from 16 to 20 million. Wow. Well, uh, you're listening to Flashpoints. We're obviously, we're talking about Yemen. We're talking about a disastrous situation only made that much worse by U.S. foreign policy. It is, uh, it is really uh, mind-boggling to me, doctor, how the United States could still be supporting this war and the brutality that we know is a part of uh, Saudi policy. It, you, you know, it... it it continues to blow my mind because I think so 
The Saudis participated in a plan to, in 9-11 to uh, blow up the Twin Towers. So what does the United States do? They go to war against Afghanistan because even though everybody knows that it was a Saudi operation, uh, some reason the Saudis don't, they, they seem to be sort of like Trump above the law. Uh, do you think this will ever change? Do you have a hope? What, what will it take? I, I actually think the new generation uh, are going to be better than people like me and my, and my age group because they do care about social justice and they do care about human rights and they care about democracy. I think people in in you know in our administration uh, they are been there for a long time. Uh, are not open to change. Uh, unfortunately, Brett McGurk, who is the National Security Advisor, considers Saudi Arabia and Emirates uh, friends. And therefore, no matter what they do, he's going to be there for them to support them. And that's Do- Doctor, I'm sorry I have to interrupt. We're out of time. How do people get in touch with you very quickly? Is there a website? Uh, yes, YemenFoundation.org. YemenFoundation.org. I'm sorry to interrupt, Doctor. We're out of time. Thank you for the incredibly important information. Stay safe, please.